expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Yep, we're back once again for episode 154 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where Nick, we promise... Not to spoil the show or make it suck before it even starts. Yeah, and the reason why we're talking about this is because we're opening in this way, I should say, is because, of course, Marvel, they're saying, hey, we're having another Darth Vader comic. It's going to follow after, I believe, Revenge of the Sith. And guess what? You're going to find out about Darth Vader's origins. Like, we kind of know how that goes yeah. down. Aren't we a little clear on that? Haven't we had... Plenty of things to tell us about his origin. I mean, what is this going to be exactly? Well, I mean, we could, of course, find out why he didn't get all those aloe vera contracts and all those endorsement deals. True. You know, stuff like that. And, True. A little you know, turtle wax endorsement right, for the helmet right. type thing. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe we'll learn about that. Or I know this is actually being honest here. They're actually talking about, oh, you're going to find out where his lightsaber came from. It's like, I really don't care. Um, Where they all came from? Yeah. I mean, shit. <laughs> I mean, the shit. lightsaber store? I mean, seriously. I mean. Come on. On. Does it does it matter? Do but we care the, that much? Off air, you brought up a great question, though. Remember, there was that Darth Vader comic that happened after Episode Four, and it was it was taking place between Four and Five. And you're kind of like, you know, and that ended rather abruptly. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, when they said there it wasn't really a full on ongoing thing, you're like. Did they mess up? Is this Marvel realizing we kind of messed up and th- ending th- the original run? I think they did because, let's face it, I think if there's one thing we can all agree on is that was one of the best books that Marvel had at the you're time. Right. I mean, it was really, really good. And they anna- then they announced it was ending, and you're like, damn and it. And the reason why that my, I myself, where I loved the Marvel Darth Vader series that came out recent, you know, a while back, I stopped reading it the last couple issues because they kept on postponing them. At least the last issue, it's like, yeah. oh, it's going to come out. I believe it was supposed to originally come out in, like, March, like, last year. They were like, oh, it's going to push back to summer. And they got pushed back more and more. I'm like, you know what? I don't care. Yeah, it's like, care. you know what? Forget it. But th- they fell down the stairs so bad right. when it came to ending that series, which they kind of seemed to do with a lot of their stuff. Secret Wars, you can throw that in they, there. They Dolores Claiborne themselves. I mean, seriously, guys, come on. I can't remember the last time I saw a comic book company that just couldn't get out of their own damn way. I think part of this is, you know, and to not not to throw so much insults at Marvel. I mean, this is the second time in the week we've opened up bashing Marvel. But to open up and go on the other side of it, I think that this is more... In a sense, even though, yes, it's going to be about his origin and stuff like that, which is still very odd, I think that this is them kind of, at least they have some self-realization of like, okay, we fucked up, let's see how we can go in a, in a, in a different way, but I understand your point, though, and kind of my point as well, of like, well, you've, you've in a sense, in the same t- span, realized you messed up, but then you're tripping over again. You could do so many other things with it, I think is my problem. There's so many other stories that you could tell. There's so much of a gap of time that you could tell. Or you could fill in gaps that, well, okay, what was Vader doing at this point in this Star Wars story? And give us more of that. I think that would be more interesting. And at what point do you really care? Because again, and then there's that. Because, again, my problem with a lot of prequel stuff is most of the time is I know how it's going to end. So whenever you do a prequel, show me how it could have been avoided. I think that's what they did well with the other Darth Vader series, though. It was like, okay, you know where this is going. Right. But at the same time, oh, so this is how so, it went down, and this is what was right. happening. And so what I'm saying is with this with this series, this is my kind of plea to Marvel, is 
if this is going to follow after episode three and he's just becoming Vader, show how maybe there is that little sight of light to him where maybe he has an inner conflict. Maybe he's like, man, I don't, maybe I should have just left that left on that volcano to die. I don't want, you know, let him be kind of like a prisoner of his own hell in a sense. You know what pushed him over the edge. You kind of know what made him who he is, but right. we don't need to know like why they chose this particular costume from to wear. Right. Why he ne- we know why he needs something to help him breathe, okay? That's not that's not a mystery, you know? Yeah. So show us something else. Like you said, show us, you know, that maybe there was a point where it looked like he was gonna turn back, but then something happened and he didn't right. sort of thing. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they do that. And coming up next, it's what we're reading and one of us is returning to Starfleet. Stay tuned and find out who it is next. This is Lexa Doig from Arrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls. We pull our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, you're a big He-Man fan. You love the Thundercats. I mean, those are pretty much the two big things that you grew up with as a kid outside of Transformers and everything else. And when DC Comics, of course, a while back, they announced, hey, we're doing a crossover of He-Man and Thundercats. And, of course, I believe you reviewed the first issue, yep. which you did. And... Now, that is coming to a close this week, so without further ado, what did you think of the conclusion of the crossover between He-Man and Thundercats? Yep, and this is He-Man Thundercats number six, of course, of six, written by Rob David and Lloyd Goldfine, drawn by Freddie E. Williams II, colored by Jeremy Caldwell, and lettered by Darren Bennett. Now, what you see basically right in the beginning is the aftermath of the last issue and He-Man and Lionel coming up on the battle scene where Mamator kind of, when they formed and, you know, kind of rose up in the aftermath of what happened there. And nah, I don't think that this is a spoiler to say it wasn't pretty. And for people who are wondering, well, what the hell's Mamator enlighten them? Yeah, it basically Mumra and Skeletor literally joined together. Yeah. I mean, literally became one. And it looks so much like Hordak. It's kind of weird. Right? <laughs> I mean, like a giant Hordak kind of thing. I know it's different. Don't don't even do that. Don't Twitter bash me or anything. <laughs> I know it's totally different, and, 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 and I get it. It just, it just looked a little bit similar. So basically now it's time to protect Castle Grayskull, and that's what a lot of this issue is about is protecting Castle Grayskull. And what I thought was pretty interesting is once you get into the meat of this issue, they gets to a point in the castle where He-Man says to Lino, even... I haven't crossed through here. Even I haven't been this far kind of thing. And you kind of find out what's inside this secret area of Castle Grayskull. And that's when things just go, I'm going to say off the rails, but not in a bad way. It's just like what you're seeing is something that you don't really expect to see. and But at the same time, once you find it, it makes sense. It's Man of Arms porn collection, just porn everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, you could look at different areas at different times. Right. And, you know, react with different faces. You know, Manny faces I mean, kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I, well, I mean, I mean, when the door is just a bunch of beads that hang down from the doorway, I think that should have been a sign right there. Let me just say this. We obviously know that there's a multiverse right. in this because this is happening and certain things... Uh, sort of kind of occur as the issue goes through. And it's very surprising. I don't want to spoil any of these things because I want people to see them. Let's just say that we see different things different ways kind of thing. So it's just very, very interesting. And then once you think, you know, things have kind of of come to a resolve, they're not. And then there's more to it, and you think it's over, and it's not. So basically it's He-Man and Lino basically by themselves trying to figure out how to defeat Mumator, even though they do have a little help from the sorceress as well. And she plays a role 
in this as we go. But one of the things I do love about this book is it's very self-aware that it's that it's a comic and that this this is kind of an interesting kind of partnership. So they make light of that in a couple of different ways. And one thing I loved about this series is how predictably in the time period that it was in. And I think for fans like myself, that was important because you didn't want to lose that. Obviously, this is a serious story and there's a lot of serious shit going on. But at the same time, you don't want to lose that kind of half campiness that this that these kind of stories can have. And they very much do that in this book. And I think the ending, which I won't spoil for you either, but I think that anybody that's a fan of books like this kind of probably going to kind of know how it ends. Right. But one of the things I loved was like the, the relationships that were built through this book. And you kind of see that at the end as well. Like uh, Panthro and Duncan have their little th- relationship and the, the dynamic between uh, Prince Adam and He-Man, of course, and Lino and how they kind of help each other become who they need to be at the time sort of thing. And the art, I mean, man. It's glorious. There's a page early on in the book. Now, I haven't read this issue, but I'm just looking at what James has on his tablet. And there's a, a page way back in the beginning of the book, towards the beginning, I should say, of just he, it's a two, it's a it's kind of a two shot of He Man and Lionel. It's a front shot of them, and it's them saying side by side going into action, and it looks just badass. And if I could just say something, the art throughout this entire series has been phenomenal. I mean, Freddie E. Williams has definitely got cred here. I mean, he he did the Batman TMNT crossover not too long ago as well, and I mean, just Out, he's made for stuff like this. outside of the detail of like literally like Man Arms' armor and just the characters mm-hmm. themselves. You want a book with color. This oh, totally. is a book and yeah. a series for you. If you want a series with just tons of bright colors and beautiful aesthetics. There's a there's a point towards the end of the book where you're kind of coming into the climax of the storyline where there's a two-page spread of kind of like this is the end sort of thing. Yeah. And it's just so colorful and gorgeous. Even the lettering, down to the lettering, the coloring is so important and so fantastic in this book. So, I mean, if you're a fan of He-Man and Thundercats all separately. Or if you've ever wondered, you know, kind of what it would be like if they the two worlds collided. I mean, this limited series has been so fantastic and seeing the way that these characters interact with each other, even, I mean, towards the end of the book, is just so phenomenal. And that's why this series has been a pull for me for the beginning. And if you haven't read it yet and you want to go back and get the single issues or maybe you're waiting for the trade, definitely worth picking up. Big time pull for me. I want to kind of highlight one of the negatives you highlighted back in your first review of the first issue. Uh, you said that it was the narration. It was just too much narration. You know, you kind of saw, you know, it, it kind of felt forced. It didn't really fit. Was there a lot of narration in this final issue, or was it kind of more not not a problem? They definitely pulled back on it. I mean, it was still there, but it wasn't as much as it was in past issues. Actually, the issue previous to that as well in issue five, I kind of felt like they pulled back on that a little bit as well. So I think that they kind of realized, okay, we don't really need to do this as much anymore, especially once once they were leading towards the whole Mama Tour thing, and you kind of saw that maybe that's what they were going to do. They pulled back on it and didn't need to do that. And I mean, there's a couple of cool reveals in here about Lionel that maybe you didn't know, and a couple things about He-Man that you might not have known as well. So... Very, very cool stuff, and I'm, I'm really glad that they decided to do this. And this is one of those things that could have been really bad, and I'm glad that they kind of took their time to do it right and move the story forward. All right, well, my book this week, of course, comes from our friends over at IDW Publishing, as I did Star Trek Deviations, and it's written by Donnie Cates. Art's done by Josh Hood. Colors are done by Jason Lewis. Letters done by Anne World Design. I also want to mention that this book is a one-shot as well, which centers, of course, 
If you haven't seen the preview pages for it or anything, this is a book that centers around the cast and crew of the Next Generation series. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much this is one of those things where, in a sense, it's kind of a a what-if scenario, but it's it's kind of up to the person to decide on that. Uh, in this world, pretty much, instead of the Vulcans finding Earth, the Romulans find Earth ah, first. Ah, nice. And so Earth is pretty much this prison-esque thing, this this hellscape, pretty much, if you will. And so in order to kind of save it, this whole, this, this one shot, I should say, is basically a rescue mission. I'm not going to say who is the one that is rescued, but the way that this opens up is, is you have Joy LaForge... And you have Worf, and you and you have a, a mass character. I'll say that because it reveals later in the book. I want that to be more of a surprise for people as the book goes forward. Because mm-hmm. the person, the reason why I, I want to hold keep it secret is because it's the same person who does the narration throughout the book. And the narration, I'm like, the, it's smart because it's not done like this is what's happening now. Da 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 da. It's more written in letter form, like Dear Billy. If you get this, you know. This is what's happening. Know me, stuff like that. Right. Which we'll get to more Dear oh, Billy we will. and Geektainment. But this is a book where it's kind of like it's 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 when you first see the first page. At least when I saw the first page, like, oh, this could be more like a Mad Max thing because you have you know Joel Forge driving the way that he's he he's blind, so it's kind of like, well, how can he drive? Well, he this is not a spoiler. It's earlier in the first page. He finds a way to. Uh, connect his eyes to Data's, like a severed head of Data. Which is really smart, if you think about it, to be able to go that route and, hey, mate, you're seeing for the first time and right. you're behind the wheel. Good for you, man. Right, makes Stevie Wonder jealous as fuck right now. Right, ex- exactly. Not superstitious <laughs> at all. <laughs> but, again, this whole book, you have uh, pretty much reveals the people from the show that come in and in a kind of like a reintroduction sense of certain characters, and so if you're a fan of, this, of the Next Generation series, which I am, I, I think, I, I, th- I am one of those people where I'm more of a fan of the Next Generation than the original series. And that's that's part of your age, too, right. I think. Well, my mom loves John luc Picard, so you know she watched it all the time, so of course, being a kid in that era, I grew up watching it, too. I mean, Picard's the better captain. Well, I know that that's my, a huge well, debate, Well, also, my but... mom found Patrick Stewart rather uh, attractive, Well, that, you know, it's funny, I hear that a lot. Yeah. Like, a lot, and I'm like, Hey, you know, with whatever floats your boat. Yeah. But uh, hey, you know, whatever you're gonna Mom, do. Mom, I want spaghettios. You can stare at Patrick Stewart anytime. <laughs> 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 but no, this is like you know, it's written by Donny Cates, of course, and I like what he does in this book. Where again, it's a recon mission. It's a it's a rescue mission, but in a sense, it's really you have these moments of badassery. These you know, it's not a lot of action outside of them breaking into the prison. There's not a whole lot of action. But really, there's a lot of good emotional beats in here where you're like, you are hit hard by some of the reveals in this mm-hmm. book that he does. And I just want to say that the lettering um, by And World Design is great because, as I said, this is written, the narration's done in a letter form. Mm-hmm. And so you have words that are like crossed out, maybe like misspelled, and there's cr- oh, you like see the that. X through it. So it's I kind like of that. like you know writing as you go, thinking as you go, and your the, the letters being written, and the art in this it's really really detailed. I mean, honestly, you know we just talked about the crossover between He Man and the Thundercats. This is kind of reminiscent of that, not as yeah. colorful because of course it takes place in the dark of space. Yeah, and that wouldn't make sense. But it, in terms of detail and look, it's really close. And, I mean, Josh Hood does a phenomenal job, and Jason Lewis does a great job as well. And when you see who is being rescued in this, you're like, 
oh, this is really, really cool. And I, overall, this this one shot is something I think if you're a Star Trek fan, you would want to pick up. I think if you're somebody who has not grown up with the Next Generation or has not read it, you're gonna. I'm not gonna lie, you're gonna feel a little lost with this. Um, and, and you're going to be lost, well, wait, when is this taking place? What's going on here? Yeah. You know, there might be time you might have to go to a comiclist.com and see, okay, what is the synopsis of this mm-hmm. book? If you're not, again, somebody who has watched The Next Generation as much as I have, or somebody else, you know, who has watched it. But overall, I mean, this is a definite pull for me. I mean, I know it's a one-shot, but the way that this book ends is that this is kind of like, not really a passing of the torch, but it's more of like a beacon of hope for maybe the next generation of Starfleet and people of this next generation crew, and, and see maybe, maybe like okay maybe there will be a point where they find somebody or you know further on way to decide hey we want to branch this out to more books into an ongoing series or a limited series where at some point the torch can be passed over and that's why this book kind of feels like to me so really if you're somebody who wants that kind of bridge between you know, next generation and maybe a future generation, this is a book for you. I think that IDW's done a pretty good job in that regard for the most part with right. their deviation books of, uh, of like, okay, this isn't really what happened, but if this happened, and that's very much their one-up scenario. one scenario, yeah. And the reason why I want to point that out too is, speaking of IDW and all the Star Trek books that they do have, this is a really, really beautiful job by IDW because with this whole Star Trek universe that they're doing, they do a great job of making everything – you know, seem connected with one another, even though it's it's not. Even though the books are, you know, take place at different times yep. and they have different crews, you'd feel like they're all connected in some sense, or there's, or if maybe not, they're they're separated enough to where they stand on their own. I and, think that's what they do a good job, and with. they're not reliable on other yeah, books. Really, they, they very much allow them to to succeed or fail on their own, and and succeed is the by and you large, want, you know, kind of sense. But if you there. want time together, then by all means, yeah, time and, together and you could eventually do that. that. Yeah. Well, have you seen what they did with Revolution? They could certainly make that work at some point. And we've got Star Trek Aliens to look forward to at some point down the line as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to what they've got in store. And that's gonna do it for reading. Become next, James and I board a helicopter. It was made in the 70s as we travel to Skull Island and we meet Kong. This is Carlos Magno and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. Dear Billy, I wanted to let you know that I went to the movies last night and I'm here to tell you, son, monsters are real. <laughs> Dear Billy, I went to the movies last night, cut a hole in the bottom of the bucket, popcorn bucket, and I had a service myself. <laughs> Dear Billy, don't get on a helicopter anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Billy, always be mindful of the gorillas at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, because you're going to want to keep your distance from Kong, especially when you're in Skull Island. By the way, spoiler-filled review coming at you right now. And, of course, this movie takes place in the post, like, just, like, Vietnam is just ending. Literally so, just Literally ending, just yeah. ending. So it's, ju- like, just post-Vietnam era, back in the 1970s, and... This takes place where, of course, you have John Goodman and assistant pretty much or just a scientist that he works with. And so they go on this expedition with the military because John Goodman in the movie says we need a military ex, you know, a military uh, uh, escort. escort. And, of course, led by Samuel Jackson who plays a colonel in it. And I got to say, man, I just want to start off by saying this. This movie, the cinematography of when they're arriving to the island, fucking gorgeous it really was and and i I think that you know right off the get you realize from the beginning of this movie the very very beginning you're saying all right this is already better than godzilla yeah (laughs) well because in the beginning of the movie 
Actually, I should say this in the beginning of the movie. It starts off with John C. Riley's character, the younger the version, younger version anyway. in World War II, crash landing, having a great fight with a Japanese soldier, which is, was awesome. So already you're starting off with action. Mm-hmm. But literally, like, the first five minutes, it's like, Kong isn't a fucking diva at a concert. He's not like I'm not like, like listen. Godzilla can make you wait forty minutes to see him, but bitch, I'm fucking here. That's he right. knows how to make a goddamn entrance. Yes, he does. And what was funny is is that they could have went the route where you know he crushes them both and they die. Right. And you go the vicious route. They didn't do that at all. And then of course you find out later on. Well, we'll get to that later on. But I mean, like you said, the whole escort thing with John Goodman and Corey Hawkins' character, and Corey Hawkins actually being the one that seals the deal, saying, "Hey, we don't know what could be there. We could cure cancer. Well, no, or all well, of these well, other no. things." What gets him is, remember, this is this is Cold War era. Oh, that's era. right, the Russians. So thing. he yeah. says, listen, the Russians might find it first, and then the center's like, okay, we're going to go. Because remember, at that time, really, in order to get, anything, to get anything moving, it's like, just mention Russians, and, you know, then they can find something first, yep. or discover something first, and yep. then we're fucking on it. Uh-huh. But, you know, of course, this, to go, before we go on this mission, I should say, before we go on this expedition, to find out like what's there when you kind of go to this, this whole Skull Island concept, they say, "Well, we need a tracker, and we need a photographer uh, to to pretty much you know document this whole yeah. and stuff we find." So they get Tom Hiddleston, and this who plays James Conrad, who is of course a tracker, and he his character in this. I mean, I know you need somebody to find their way through an island, but. Really? Do you need a tracker when a monkey is leaving 20 feet big footprints? Well, in the keep ground? in mind, John Goodman's the only one that knows that there's a giant monkey there. Right. So, I mean, there is a little bit of a keeping up appearances kind of thing. I mean, it's not like he went up to everybody and said, by the way, we're, we're there to find a giant fucking gorilla. So, uh, everybody strap <laughs> in and uh, let's go find this thing. No, no, that was not an in the know thing. And we find that out when he has the interaction with Samuel L. Jackson's character and they go, look. I want you to tell me everything you know now kind of thing. And, of course, Brie Larson plays Mason Weaver, who is not a war photographer. She's an anti-war photographer. And we won't get into that. Look up your history. Up you your should history, know what's going on You know what's there. going on. So they're on this, you know, boat right now. They're, going, they're kind of getting, getting briefed. This is where the shit really hits the fans. When they're getting briefed and they're like, we're going to plant charges. Like, wait, wait a minute. Why, for an excavation thing, do you need to plant charges and drop bombs? Clue number one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, fast forward, you get right to Skull Island, and as you see in the trailer, Branch goes through the fucking helicopters, and Kong is pissed. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's just all of the sudden, you know, like, everybody's having a good time. Oh, look at how beautiful this is. Oh, let's take some pictures, tree branch. Right. You know, kind of thing. And then it's just on, like... No, I'm not going to say it. No, it's, yeah, it's don't absolutely... Don't say it. I will, I it will is... reach across this fucking table <laughs> and strangle you with my bare hand. It is absolutely on. And, I mean, it's just so frantic. And that scene where he has one of the choppers and it's kind of, you kind of see it going around and around and around and around. And all of a sudden, you just see his eye and then the mouth kind of right. thing. And, oh, that was just so beautiful. And that's what's great. And that. this is one thing I love about this movie is that it really looks at Godzilla... And and you can compare it because this, this is a monster universe. Shared universe. Shared universe. And so pretty much you look at it and it says, okay, what did Godzilla get wrong? Well, let's see. It was very character-driven. We didn't really care about the characters that much. Human-driven. Yes. We show a lot of Godzilla. We didn't really show a lot of the fights that happened with, between Godzilla and the monsters in there. And it's anti that. It's like, yep. okay, so you got Kong. Tons of scenes with Kong. And 
Also, you got tons of scenes of the Skullwalkers and the, the fights between not just him and the Skullwalkers, but also the humans and the Skullwalkers and Kong and other beasts around the island as well. And every one of them was satisfying. Yeah, not only that, you get the humans and some of the other beasts that were on the island as well, like the giant friggin' spider and all that stuff. And right. then there were just, there were, there were other characters in there that there weren't even really battles with, but they were there to show you there's really a vast array, like the, like the, like the log, Creature that kind of yeah, stick monsters, yeah, the, the stick, stick monster. Yeah, that that wasn't really a monster because it didn't no. seem to like want to fight back. But it was establishing that hey, this is all the weird stuff that's going right. on on this island. And, and also, if you're somebody who has read the Boom Studios' prequel series, this really is a beautiful movement and transition. When you see the tribes that are there as well, and that's where we get introduced, really reintroduced, I should say, to John C. Riley's character, of course, Hank Marlowe. Who's been there again, mind you, since World War Two? Yeah. Uh, so when you see the tribe and, and kind of you know Marlow there as well, it's kind of like, oh, oh, this is great. Like, like this is like you know mm-hmm. again, it's connecting the things, and this makes the prequel, the whole prequel series. Which again, if you haven't read it, go back and read because it it's fucking phenomenal. And it's funny because so often those comics are throwaways just for a cash grab. You right. Know, you put the title of a movie on there. It's not that at all. This one matters so much because it gives you such a great appreciation of everything that because led up to this point in this movie. Because you know how Kong gets to Skull Island. Right, and, and, how, the, and, know, and how the tribe gets to Skull, Kong Skull Island, too. And you know what happens to his fellow Kong yes. leading up to that, and the, the the Skull Crawlers, all of those things. You find out all of these things before the movie even starts. So it, it's really beautiful, and it makes you... I think, at least in my case anyway, it made me give me a better appreciation for the story itself. And it made me give more more hatred towards Samuel L. Jackson's character. Oh, totally. Who has a gripe against Kong because he's like, wait a minute, Kong killed all my men when we arrived on his island. Even though, even though we dropped bombs and fucked up his homeland, we're, we're going to, you know, I, I still want to kill him. And, and that made me hate him even more. I'm like, wait a minute, you asshole. Kong is a goddamn protector. Like, he's protecting these people, you motherfucker. That's the one line in the movie that I think stood out to me the most was when John C. Riley's character says, you don't come into somebody's house, drop bombs, right. and expect there not to be consequences. And, and I'm like, yeah? And I understand they want to figure out parts is, you know, Corey Hawkins' character, Houston Brooks, has this whole hollow earth theory. And so it's, that's, that's, I don't give a fuck. You're dropping bombs and you're blowing up shit. Yeah, let's not give Corey Hawkins' character he's a not pass innocent. on this. He's not getting a pass on this, even though he kind of does in the movie. But he's one of the main reasons they dropped these bombs in the first place. So yeah. you don't get a pass there, Houston. But, yeah. But, again, with, with this movie, with Kong Skull Island, what I loved about it was, again, going back to Godzilla, it was very human-driven. And the humans were made at the forefront when people don't want to see that. People want to see monsters. They want to see monster fighting. So... What what happens? You get that. And the humans, I like the way that... If there's one little grip I had about this, now this is a movie that's not perfect. There's is, there is little tiny problems with it here and there. One problem with me was I wish there was a little bit more depth uh, between Brie Larson and Tom Hilson's characters because they were technically the main characters. I wish there was more than just Tom Hilson in the bar and Brie Larson just somehow is in a dark room. That's our first introduction to her. No real background of that. But I did like that they that the humans in this film were more... Kind of uh, uh, like like fan belts to kind of move the story and narration along. And I think that's why they did that. I think they thought, okay, you know, we could spend 15, 20 minutes giving you more backstory and making you care about these characters more. Or we could give you what you said you wanted more of in Godzilla and get right to the point. And I think that that's what they did. I mean, I think you kind of understand what Tom Hiddleston's role is. You kind of understand what 
uh, Brie Larson's role is. But we were talking about this off the air, and what they realized and finally got right in this movie is that it's not about them. No. So that's what they got right. They and, spent more time on the island and on Kong himself. And what I love about this movie, you know, I mean, it, it as well, again, is just not since Ben Affleck's The Town, which, of course, is that bank robber movie from years ago, have I seen a movie where the setting is its own character. This is a movie where the the island itself, not just the creature's island, but the island itself is its own character, where every corner is a sense of mystery and also a sense of danger that comes with it. Yeah, because you don't know what the hell is going to be around any corner. I mean, I, I could tell you that most of the time in this movie, especially since some of the deaths in this movie were so random, like when that scientist guy just gets ripped off the boat yeah. and his arm gets chopped off by the funky-looking By the way, I felt for thing. him in that sense. Right. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure you did. Yeah. And he lost more of his than you did. Yeah. So, I mean, he lost like, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, some of them were so random. It's like, you can't just sit back and think everything's going to be cool because I want to say any that second too, it could be on. For a PG-13 movie, this had a good amount of like scenes where you're literally like, holy shit. Yeah, like, my seeing, wife had to turn around a couple times. You're seeing spider legs go down guys' throats. You're yeah. Like, like, giant spider legs, like like bamboo-sized yeah. shit go down guys' throats. You're seeing, as you said, mentioned, even though it was in the sunset, it was more of like, a, you know, you see a, a shadowy figure in a sense in the sun. Him, you see his arm, the guy's arm getting cut off yeah. and, and just beaten up and everything Not else. Not to like mention that. that final fight. I mean, there was some serious shit going yeah. on in that final fight. Yeah, man. But I mean, director Jordan Voigt Roberts, who, you know, I think did a marvelous job, is he knew what he wanted and he knew what this movie had to be for this shared universe. And, you know, speaking of that final fight between the giant skull crawler and Kong, you had kind of an issue with that. Okay, it's a little thing. How does Brie Larson not die? Right. Someone pl- seriously tweet us at Down in Nerdy Seven Five Seven if you can tell me how she doesn't die either by being in the water as long as she was. I'll, pa- I'll give him a pass on that. How does she not die by being in Kong's fist when said fist goes down Skullcrawler's throat and rips out the guts of the monster, thus killing the monster, which was badass, by the way. Yeah. How does she not die? I mean, okay, maybe she's safely nestled in the hand of Kong. <laughs> does she not get crushed by said hand? Does she not get suffocated by going down this creature's throat kind of thing? Right. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad she lived. Really glad she lived. But at the same time, I don't understand how she lived. And I'm not going to overanalyze it. It's not a deal breaker for me. I'm just curious. Right. And, and you know, going with this whole final fight sequence, it was probably one of the best final fights I've seen oh, in a absolutely. monster movie. I mean... Kong, and not only this, not only were the fights just, oh, it's Kong versus these monsters beating the shit out of them. It's, this is a primate. They has a nice-sized brain, so it's smart. Yeah, gorillas are friggin' smart, in case you didn't know. So you see Kong being tactical in these fights. Oh, totally. It's not like Godzilla where it's just brute strength and I'm using my atomic breath to kill this monster. It's Kong, he's chained to, like, this boat pretty much, and he's like, wait a minute, my, my... arm is right around his chain and his propeller. I'm going to rip around my fist yep. and fucking use it as a weapon. The light bulb went off on top of his right. head and he's like, By the oh. way, how great would have... You know what I want to see right now? Like, how great in my head... This is what I have in my head, but I really want to see this in real life. If somebody took that, takes that final fight scene between Kong and the giant skull crawler and puts J.R. Jim Ross's commentary to that it. That would be pretty good. I mean, that happens with so many other things. Oh, Why not this? He, I mean, uses it as a fucking baseball bat. Yeah. Like, again, that's him being tactical. That's yeah. him being smart. 
and that's what I like. And also, the humans really, I mean, yeah, they were mostly there to die, but they weren't fucking dumb either. No, know? well, a couple of them were. Well, some of them were. <laughs> but for different reasons, like Samuel L. Jackson, for a different reason kind of thing. Well, Samuel L. Jackson's character was, in the beginning of the movie, and it's, and it's highlighted in the beginning of, the, of like his first scene, literally, where he has this little box open. He's like, he has all these medals yep. and these awards, and he's like, you know, all this for, for nothing. And pretty much this is, of course, at the end of Vietnam. We lost Vietnam, but him being a colonel, him being so assimilated into the military, he's like, I need to go out with a win. I need to win. And and even you, Brie Larson's character says, you know, we lost. He goes, no, we didn't lose. We just, well, you know, left. You combine that with the fact that he lost his men. And right. Military, you don't leave anybody behind kind of thing. You avenge but your, even your people. When, but, so. that's, but that's shown even when it says, hey, this guy, I can't name his name, but he, he's the guy who writes the Dear Billy letters. He's dead. Chapman, I think. Chapman, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, he's dead. He's like, we carry on anyway. He's like, motherfucker! Yeah. Do you not understand? You have a t- you have to be at this point by this time to be rescued. But no, you're going to have a goddamn gripe and just go, f- even when all is lost, and you know there's no reason outside of your, measuring your own dick size, you know, and, and, and your own ego, you're still going forward with this. It's insane. Vengeance took over at that point, yeah. and then pride goeth before the fall, too. Oh, wow, yeah. He didn't so much fall as he was impaled into the ground kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> he became one with the earth, let's yeah, just say that. He definitely became one with the earth. I don't think that, that he'll be sprouting back up anytime soon, either. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> what I love is that, that this movie didn't go like the full Transformers Pacific Rim route kind of thing where it's like, oh, it's just giant robots right. fighting and oh, that's why it's awesome. There's also very, you know, very emotional moments with Kong and stuff like that. Kong has a soul. Yes. Like he has a soul. He has feelings for humans. He understands his role on this island and it's to protect the humans and stuff like that. And and that creates a bond to where and you see him get hurt. You see the scene where he's in that lake, that river of f- literal fire, yep. and he's being burned alive. And you're like, you f- like, pardon me, I didn't cry, but pardon me, was just like my heart was breaking. So I'm yeah, like, it's like why? Because especially because when you're somebody who's like us who have read the prequel comics, and you're like. They're not meant to kill people. Right. They're meant to be their protectors. Right, exactly. And you're hurting this person. And you're hurting this, 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 this not monster, but this, just this giant gorilla. You're hurting this being. And it just, it rips at your heartstrings, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, even the moment before that where he's tending to his wounds from the initial conflict right. with, the, with the choppers and the humans and he's kind of like, you know, getting a drink and checking his wounds and stuff like that and then, you know, has himself some calamari. Right. But, I mean, you, you see that humanizing moment, which Chapman sees before he dies, yeah. dies and it was almost like his moment of going... Huh. So it's like he gets it before he dies, but never get a chance to pass that message along sort of thing. So that's what kind of separated this movie, I think, from even Godzilla as well, because you got to see that moment of having a soul. Right, right. Now, of course, before we give our ratings on this, there is an end credit scene. And really, the way I can describe this is, and we're going to talk about what it is, but when I saw the end credit scene, which pretty much is a slideshow of the characters who are remained alive, and it's a slideshow of saying, we weren't the first ones here. This is not our world. And you see, the, like, the Tomb of Mothra. You see, you know, Gadira. You see Rodan's. Yep. Not, not beast form. You don't see their actual forms. You see, like, cave drawings. Yep. And Godzilla cave drawings. And so that ties everything together of, like, okay, this is just, this, is, this ties the universe beautifully together. And this is me saying, 
wow, they are really committed to this monster universe. And I mean, you kind of have to go all in at this point. You now, really here's do. a question. Now, the next movie that follows this, of course, is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So who do you think is going to be in the King of the Monsters fights? Uh, if it's me, i got I got to have Rodan in there. you got to have a big name. So i go Rodan. Maybe Mothra. I don't know if you if you kind of push those two together in, in one movie. Right. I mean, especially since you don't really want to... You don't really want to overload it, but that. But then again, you got to look forward to like, okay, how far are we going to go with this? How many more Godzilla movies are there going to be? Because you well, know, remember, the next this, is one a giant, that, this is a giant universe. So right. I think it's, this is a franchise. I think it'll get a potential franchise. So the one after that, we know, is probably going to be the Kong versus Godzilla movie. So be, then, that's how it's going to go. And then after that, you can go tor- towards something else. And then that begs the question: How long do you wait before you introduce the blank monster? Right. Into well, there, here's what I think is going to happen: the monsters that they show in us. I think here's what you're gonna get: King of the Monsters. I think you're gonna get you're gonna get Mothra. And I think you're gonna get Rodan. I think those are gonna. I think at least you got. I think you at least have to have two. You monsters. can't wait for Rodan. Is my thing because I think that that's one of the top ones up there. Right, and you have to do now, that, especially coming off a bad Godzilla movie. Right now, when it comes to Godzilla versus King Kong, which of course is going to be the next movie after Godzilla, or at least it appears to be the next movie after Godzilla. I think that's King a pretty of the safe monsters. bet. Yeah. Uh, Okay, in a lot of versus movies, and basically every versus comic, there's always an antagonist that makes the two people who are fighting, or beings, in this case monsters who are fighting, come together and join forces and fight. I think that that antagonist, if I mean, you want to talk about big antagonist, you put King Ghadira in there. Makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Because, again, you go back to Kong having that soul and self-awareness. It could be one of those things where he's fighting with Godzilla, and then here comes King Ghadira, and, and Kong goes, uh... I think we need to deal with this now, guy. Now, here's first. a question that we talked about off air. What do you think they're going to do in terms of Kong versus Godzilla? Are they going to do it more where Kong gets on the gets comes to you know America or some city and meets Godzilla there, or is Godzilla find his way to Skull Island? Now, I think that it's going to be the latter of the two because even though because I think it makes more sense it'd be more f- better to see that way. Um, but overall, I think that what you might see is, and the way that they can open up is like, we might not be the, you know, you're going to see more people coming to Skull Island. Which they reference in the movie. They yeah. reference about it. So maybe if somebody brings Kong over, I don't know. But again, if you bring him over, that erases the whole reason why he's on Skull Island in the first place. And and you would really, really have to give a good reason why he leaves, unless he's forced to leave because you established in the movie why he's there in the first place that, but, and how important it is that he be there. Not only that, but I'm sorry, this King Kong is much bigger than any Kong we've seen. Yeah, in, in any Kong movies. Yeah, how the ain't hell no you fucking gonna... way you're getting him on the boat. Yeah, how the hell are you gonna get him over there? Yeah, there's no way he's sitting on an aircraft. You're gonna drag him on a barge. I don't think that that's right. gonna happen. So, right. I mean, yeah, that's it. Begs that question. I mean, of course, there's a whole how the hell does Godzilla get over there too? But I think that's an easier problem to solve. Well, Godzilla's than a Kong. water monster. Yeah, I he think that's swim. I think that's a lot <laughs> easier problem to solve. And maybe remember. They did bombs in Japan. He originated in Japan. He can go from Japan to America. He can go from America yep. to, you know, Skull Island. That's just a much easier problem to solve for me than because th- there's a huge potential plot hole there if you just have Kong showing up right. in Japan or in America or wherever they happen to set that movie. So, yeah, I would probably do that. That would be the smart and safe bet. Yeah, so without further ado, let's give our ratings, and I'll have you go first. You know, I was... This was honestly, and no kidding aside, this was one of the m- movies that I was looking forward to the most in 2017. This was right in the top three for me because I've been waiting 
for so long. It seems like 60 plus years right. for them to get this right again. And I think that this movie did all of those things. It really, really did. So from the, the human characters that didn't need to matter because this movie wasn't about them, even though I do think there were some good interactions there. And there were some funny moments there, too. They didn't force the humor, which I also liked. Kong looked fantastic. All the fight scenes, I didn't find myself bored by any of the fight scenes, even when Kong wasn't involved. None of those felt forced either. It didn't seem like the movie dragged at all. It wasn't checking my watch or anything like that throughout the movie. So that's why, even though I had a couple of tiny little issues with it, man, this is exactly what I wanted out of this. So I'm going to go a little sentimental here, though. I'm going to go nine 28-year family reunions out of ten. <laughs> okay, well, first off, I'm going to highlight the positives. I want to start off again with the cinematography. When you watch this movie, there are a lot of scenes that just feel iconic, that where like you can just take a picture of it, and you can blow it up and make any posters out of it you want. You can make it a background on a laptop. It sticks in your mind. I mean, just every scene, whether it's just them flying over the island itself or, you know, Kong's Sam Jackson standing there amongst the flames and Kong's face showing up. A lot of beautiful, beautiful, iconic moments. Uh, great job by the cinematographer, director of photography, and everybody involved in the visual effects. Uh, great, great job. It's probably, I think, the best, I will say this, the best visual effects movie. I'm saying this better than Doctor Strange. Yeah. I think because yeah. Doctor because the reason why is I say it is because you look at Doctor Strange, a lot of it was green screen. A lot of it was computer generated. This, they actually went to Vietnam and shot. So when you see those actions, you're like, okay, this really looks practical. I know I'm not looking at a fucking green screen here. Authentic. Too. It looks authentic as hell. Uh, the characters, as far as the character go, characters go, Again, I wish there was a little bit more. I didn't. I don't need to know the dates and births of everybody involved, especially the main characters. But if I had a little bit more of a, of a, a depth on those characters, a little bit, just a tiny bit more substance to the, the Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston's characters, at least, that I would have liked. I would prefer that. I did like that this movie used them as more of a backdrop, as more of a, a, a again a, a vehicle to deliver narration, kind of like here's what's going on in a sense. Here's some background info. And it wasn't centered around them. I like that, even though they were, you know, in every scene, basically. I like that the, a lot of, I will say this over, but the jokes, the jokes didn't land as much as I wanted them to. John C. Reilly's character, who a lot of people, including me, were kind of like, oh, God, is he going to be the kind of character that is going to derail this thing in terms of just forcing the comedic effort? And I think he was, a lot of his stuff worked. A lot of his, his lines worked, his whole reasoning. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of, I didn't tear up, but I got, Felt very emotional that final scene where he in the in the, in the end credits when they're rolling and he's coming home. Why I brought it up? Yeah. Oh Jesus yep. Christ! I mean, it, it, it's just it, that's the emotion. It's just you know, I mean, somebody who comes from a military family and seeing having seen people of my family come back from you know ser- spending you know serving their time overseas and everything else and within the core, uh, it really hit me close to home and, and and it really really was a great emotional level for me. Uh, the fight scenes, as you mentioned, they weren't, you know, none of this was boring. They, they, they showed everything as brutal as they were. They really showed the, the technicality of the fights. They showed Kong as more than just a giant monkey on an island, you know, who's strong as shit. He actually has a brain. He has feelings. He has emotions. Um, overall, again, just there were certain small issues I had with the movie. But 
to be honest, I'm going to give this 9 out of 10 dicks out for Harambe. All right. Hey, that's a we agree on this. Yeah. For two weeks in a row now. Yeah. I hope this trend continues. I hope it does. <laughs> I mean, we got Iron Fist next week, so Yo, maybe, we'll maybe, maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. Based on what we've been seeing so far, who knows? And that's going to do it for our review of Kong Skull Island. But coming up next, a bunch of nerd news coming your way. Stay tuned. This is Audrey Spotify from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's time once again to go around the internet because it's time for what? Nerd News! And our first story, pretty much in a sense, but not really, ties the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Valiant Cinematic Universe together. Here's what it does, is it lets Valiant flex their muscle a little bit over the things that they're doing, because Quantum and Woody are going to be coming to TV, but it's going to be helmed by none other than the Russo Brothers, after they finish Avengers Infinity War. Now, Nick, before we dive into all the details and particulars of this, how huge is this for Valiant Entertainment? This is huge because look at who else they're getting. They're getting Ant-Man veterans Andrew Bear and Gabriel Ferrari to be executive producers on the project, in addition to scripting the pilot episode. So this is big because they're getting people, they're bringing people from Marvel to Valiant, which in a sense, really, uh, is more in, in an upstart phase. I mean, they have various different projects uh, in place. Of course, they have the Harbinger and Bloodshot feature films. Uh, they're going to have an Archer and Armstrong and Shadow Man films as well. So, who, you know, this is big. This is big. Valiant's not fucking around. They're saying, you know what, let's go after the big guns. And I like this. I love this move. Right, and I mean, we know that the Russos have won Emmys for their stuff on Arrested Development and Communion and stuff like that, so it's not like... They're completely tied to, to feature films and stuff like that. But, I mean, look at the premise for, for Quantum and Woody. I mean, basically, they're bickering interracial adopted brothers that kind of get granted superpowers and a lab explosion, you know, which is kind of typical superhero type of thing. But it just seems like this is the kind of vibe that is right in the Russo brothers' wheelhouse. So, I mean, Valiant's got Oscar-nominated... Oscar you know, writers working on their comics, and now they've got big names working on their TV and movie projects as well. I mean, this is one of those things where Valiant almost kind of came out of nowhere in their entertainment realm anyway and said, hey, by the way, we're here too and we're ready. Well, what I love about this is that they're getting people like the Russo brothers and these other people from Marvel, and, you know, they got the writer from Arrival to do a series for them in their comics I like this because this goes to show that, hey, we're not these little guys. You know, some people might view Valiant as a small publisher, given the amount of characters that they have. But really, in a sense, it's like, listen, we're going, you know, both feed in on this thing. And we're going to get the best people we can get for this. And to get the Russo brothers on this, especially what you just talked about, what Quantum and Woody is about – you know, no matter what your thoughts are or were on Civil War, Captain America Civil War, hey, they have expertise. They they have experience in working with projects where people are, you know, feuding in a sense. They have to find a way to work as a team, you know? And in a humorous tilt, too. I think that that's one of the things that we right. find out about this is that they not only have the experience doing that, that they've got the comedy background to make it funny, make it entertaining, make it interesting. So I just love the fact that Valiant's also not afraid of coming in with a property like Quantum and Woody and saying, hey, we're going to do this. It might not be one of our top three best-known properties, but we're not afraid because we think that this is going to work. 
and I'm looking at the cover for Quantum and Woody number one, and I'm looking at one of the brothers, and the Russo brothers worked on Community. I can see Joel McHale, or Joel McHale playing playing uh, one of the brothers. Here. I knew you were going to say that. I agree. I totally agree. I love Joel McHale. He's got a good the comic, the comedic delivery that he has, and the timing that he has. I think would work really well in this series. So yeah, I would go with Joel McHale. I mean, he might have to buff up a little bit, but uh, I mean, he looks like the fucking character. He does. He does, albeit, like he, you know, a little more square-jawed. Right. But at the same time, you're right, I mean, it, it is almost uncanny. Right, well, well, from square-jawed to one of the most famous chins in Hollywood, of course, we're talking about Ben Affleck next, and, you know, he was supposed to direct the Batman film for DC, and he ended up walking away from it in terms of directing it and kind of having a big hand in its production, outside of playing the role. And there's been reasons why, like, you know, they bring out a new director, and there have been kind of reasons why as to, and some ideas as to why Affleck kind of went away. But James, you mentioned something off the air that really caught my attention about, and it's really something that no other outlet is really talking about in terms of why he may have stepped down as director. I mean, it's out there. So, I mean, it's not like people aren't talking about it, but in the, in the scope of this, Nobody seems to be talking about it. I don't know. I don't understand why that is, but they're not. What people don't understand is, and this is reported by multiple outlets, is that Ben Affleck just got out of rehab for alcohol addiction. So think about that for a second. We don't even know how long he's been going through this. I mean, this could have been all the way back to when he was involved in Batman vs. Superman. We don't know how long this lasted. And of course, he was going through the potential separation from his family and his wife, Jennifer Garner, and now it looks like they might be reconciling. So first he was going to be directing the Batman, and then he was off that, like you were saying. But what nobody knew at the time was all of this other shit that was going on in his personal life. And this is a major, major thing that he was going through. So of course, he's not necessarily going to be able to direct the Batman or really put his attention to it. So the fact that this is getting pushed back until 2018, and now we're seeing that maybe the script possibly being rewritten from the ground up, maybe at the end of the day, instead of rushing this thing just to get it out there, that they're stopping and doing what's best for this project. Well, I mean, you have your two main people that have been already cash. Of course, Ben Affleck playing Batman. You have uh, Joe Magnarello who's playing Deathstroke. So really you have your, your two big characters here. So you're set on that avenue. And, you know, you know, first of all, I just want to say, too, with, with Ben Affleck, I'm glad that he got the help he needed. Oh, I'm really glad that he's getting his life back in order. You know, alcohol addiction or any addiction at all is, is a disease, and it's a lifelong disease. It's something that people – I know my my life have to have struggled with addiction. It's a constant struggle. It's a daily, minute-by-minute, second-by-second struggle that they have to fight with and live with their entire life. So props to him for trying to get his life in order. And, you know, again, this is – you know, they're saying, well, that might not be filmed until 2018. That's fine because if anything, I want my main actor, whoever it is, if they're struggling with an addiction or getting out of rehab, I want them to have as clear a mind as possible. I want them to be able to have their life in order before any of this, you know, starts production because I want them to be able to be focused on this, not worrying about other things. Right. You know? And that's the thing, too. Here's the thing. I know people are upset. You want this now. Of course, we all want this now, but this guy has the right to put his life back together. Right. And at the right. end of the day, no matter what you do for a living, your number one priority is your family, okay? So if you've got a family life that's in turmoil and a personal life that's in turmoil, 
nothing, everything else is going to suffer until you kind of right the ship there. And that's what he really seemed to want to do, you know, at the expense of, let's face it, getting beaten down on social media over various things and all of these delays, which I'm sure he's been seeing. At the same time, he was like, look, you know what? I need to get my life in order. That's what I'm going to focus on right now. And I think when it's all said and done, we're going to look back at this and find out that all of these circumstances are going to work out for the best when it comes to this. And you mentioned family, and you know he has small children, so it's like you know when when kids are involved, they come first. You know, family Absolutely. comes first. The project, the film, it's gonna it, you're gonna get a Batman film. No matter what's gonna happen, you're gonna get a Batman led act. You know, Batman film. And you're playing, still gonna be in Justice League, right? You know? Right. So so calm down. And that's the thing. It's like you know people who are listening to this who may think of like oh, I want my Batman movie now. It's like. You have tons of them you can go back and watch, and it's kind of like you know if you if the, if the tables were reversed and you were in the same situation Affleck was in, wouldn't you want to be focusing on your getting your life in order so there's no other bad things that happen right. going forward? That'd be like if you said, uh, "Sir, excuse me, I know that you're struggling with alcohol addiction, but I need my sandwich now." Right? So could you could you make my sandwich? I know you, your life's falling apart, but I'm hungry here, and I want you to make my sandwich. No, deal with what you need to deal with because that's when. Th- you're going to be at your best because, or it's, you know, the, or, how could he possibly focus on anything else right now? Especially like you said, with young kids involved. Well, I, I think the sandwich analogy is not a good one. I think, I think if you want to use an analogy, it's more of like, listen, I know you're going to be away from your family and filming in different States and all over the world, possibly for six to months to a year or whatever. But I want my, my, my thing now. I don't care if you got to get your shit in order. I want my stuff now. You well, know, like, it's like, yeah, I know, I know that uh, your life's in turmoil, but the company right. really, really needs you to close this account. So I'm going to need you to get on an right. airplane kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. But I mean, overall, just, just congrats to him on getting his life in order. I hope everything works out for the best. And, you know, again, I, I'm I'm happy that they're taking this more slower pace because, again, as you mentioned, they're rewriting the script. It looks like from the ground up. So in a sense, it's kind of like, hey, remember Ben Affleck said a while back, if you know, I don't want to be a part of this if if the script's not good, you know. And so, hey, now it's like, okay, everything's starting to get in order. Now we can rewrite stuff and we can make things good again. You know, we can make progress on this, make this film great. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's. I mean, that's what we should want, isn't it? I mean, we should want the guy to be able to get his life back together and get the best Batman movie possible because what, what do you want? Do you want it now or do you want it done right? Right, exactly. And speaking of things, doing things right, Disney and Capcom, man, at least Disney at least lately in terms of video games has been doing the right things. Of course, you had Marvel saying, hey, a while back, all you gaming devs doing our new games, do what you want. Here, we're going to give you everything you want. Uh you know, to come out with a new Guardians of the Galaxy Telltale game series. And now they're saying, you know what, for all of you people who grew up in the world of 8-bit and, and 16-bit gaming, sit down, relax. We're bringing out some instant classics for you because Disney is rolling out in April some of their old classic Capcom games. And the list of them is going to be, and I have it right here in front of me, Chippendale Rescue Rangers and Chippendale Rescue Rangers 2 is going to be part of it, Darkwing Duck. You're going to have DuckTales and DuckTales 2. By the way, the, the the moon level on DuckTales is by far the best, you know, mm-hmm. fucking best music, I think, in, in any level for platforming games ever. Uh, you have Tailspin that's going to be coming out. And then there's going to be some features, too. There's going to have a rewind feature for games. You're going to have a time attacks kind of, kind of a, uh, a mode. 
And then you're going to have a boss rush mode, which is going to be pretty awesome. And you're also going to have a museum where it looks like they're going to have uh, drawings of characters and stuff like that you can look at as well, which is pretty cool. So in a sense, it's kind of like part game, part art book in a sense. Yeah, and I love the fact that they're not even wasting any time. I mean, this is going to be out on April the 18th, so they're, right. not, they're not screwing around. I mean, it, it's PC, Xbox One, and PS4, by the way, just in case you were wondering. But I think that, I mean, if you want to make a statement, I think that the, the first DuckTales game, it's probably the best Disney game ever. Ooh, I mean, I mean that's – see, the thing is there, there's three Disney games to me that are always at the top of my list. Uh, DuckTales, uh, then you, then there's Aladdin. Aladdin was and, good. I'll give you that. And Lion King. Yeah, Lion King was good too, but there's just something about that DuckTales game, man. I mean, I mean it was so I mean, amazing. And like you said, the moon level, come on. yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's really really great. Now here's a question, and there hasn't I haven't seen a price labeled for this in any of the the articles written about it. How much uh, do you think they're going to sell this for? I would say you know two three bucks, maybe five bucks at most. I don't know. It's Disney. That's <laughs> true. So it could be like twenty bucks. I'm thinking twenty bucks, maybe even as high as thirty, which I think would be too high, but. This is Disney. This is the company that has made you, whether you like it or not, rebuy all of their movies over and over and over again every time a new platform comes out. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking because I have the Mega Man Legacy Collection. I know it's solely Capcom, and I bought that for like 15, you know, fifteen, twenty bucks. So and it has six games attached to it. So you feel like okay, you're getting, you know, the same amount of games. So we're close to the same amount of games, maybe a little bit more. And, uh, you know, 20 bucks I don't think would be bad. I think it would be a little bit pricey, but I think, again, when you're getting the amount of games you're getting with this, I could see paying 20 bucks I, for it. I think it's going to be at least 20 I think I think that that's probably what they're shooting for. But I think based on whatever price point it is, I think we're going to know who's in charge of the price point oh, yeah. once it comes out. Because if it's 30 ah, Disney reared their ugly head again. Yep, they're, they're kind of overpricing themselves. Although I think it's funny that the way that Disney – got their game situation together was basically flushing their gaming department completely and getting rid of it right. about a year ago. I just think right. it's funny that that's what kind of righted the ship for their gaming stuff. Exactly. You know, and just really quick, you know, you're a parent. How do you, what do you think about this, you know, bringing in these, instead of having to go, you know, dust off the old NES cartridge and, and finding, just make sure the old NES system works, so the Atari works, what do you feel about this move? You know, for somebody who has a has a son or a child and, and wants to get them involved as they get older in these, you know, more classic games. I think it's great because it's it's also all in one place. You know, you're not looking for several several different cartridges and stuff like that or switching out. You know, when you want to switch games, you can kind of do it on the fly because it's all in one package. And my son likes to do it all, all the time. There's games that he'll play. Uh, on the tablet, you know, educational games and stuff, and sometimes he wants to do the the spelling game with the letters, and then when he's done with that, he moves on. There's there's another one where you put words together in sentences and stuff, so he'll move on, and he'll do that one instead when he's done, but it's all right there, so he has the opportunity to do that. I don't have to go, you know, like, get another device and give it to him right. and wait for it to power up and stuff like that, and it's kind of like this. You want to play... You know, DuckTales for a while, you can do that, and then when you're done with that, you kind of hit a couple keys, and you're on Chippendale Rescue Rangers type thing. So I think that alone, especially going into this into this new generation of gamers, I think is going to be key. Well, we've covered m- movies, we've covered video games, so let's cover some comics, and not going to be talking about any comics in particular, just more about the distribution 
of comics. So, of course, Diamond, since the collapse of Capital City Distribution in 96, has been pretty much the only play, you know player in the distribution of comics. And apparently, Annie Bean is sick and tired of that. Now, she has started a Seattle-based distribution company, and pretty much the reason why she's doing this is because she's talked about how she talked to every shop owner she's ever talked to has said, hey, my stuff from Diamond is either damaged from the boxes, the comics are ripped, or they're shorted issues, or however much they're ordered, and they're the only game in town. So she's done, what she's done is she has started her own distribution company, which is pretty awesome. It's called Emerald Comics Distribution. And James, her plan for this and how she wants to roll this out in phases is pretty interesting to where hopefully it might be able to challenge Diamond. Yeah, I mean, they're going to start in the Puget Sound area, and I think that's probably smart being based in Seattle, and they're going to go around to the shops there and stuff like that, and then they're going to slowly make their way outward into more independent shops and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's an interesting way to go. And as far as Diamond goes, yeah, I've, I've you know heard the same kind of stuff, and I know you have as well from, yep. from, from many shop owners. As a matter of fact, how many times have you seen you know, bent covers or ripped covers yep. on books. I mean, there's been times where I've flipped through books that I've gotten and in the one of the middle pages, it, it was ripped or even frayed as well. And you're going, what the hell? And of course, the shop owner's not necessarily going to see that when you're grabbing a stack of comics and sticking them on the shelf kind of thing, you know? So I think that you need competition because if you're Diamond, and I'm not saying that this is what they're doing, but if you're Diamond, you can go, well, well you know, we're, we're the only game in town, so what are you going to do? Drive up to DC's door and get your rebirth books that way kind of thing? So, right. I mean, they, they've kind of, they kind of don't really have to care, but if you get somebody that finally gets it together and gives them a little bit of competition, I mean, I know that they had another competitor struck down, I think it was in 2011. It was, yeah, it was, it was Haven Distributors who was formerly known as Cold Cut, which uh, they, they shut their doors in 2011. Right, exactly. And I know that this isn't an exact science either. It's not necessarily going to be the easiest thing to come and bump them off. But at the same time, you can't get complacent and think just because you're the only game in town, people are going to stick with you because a lot of shop owners are kind of fed up at this point. Yeah, and so I think that, you know, when you look at what they're doing here, and I'm talking about Diamond, again, it's part of it's kind of like, where are the, you know, what are you going to do? It's that, it's that what are you going to do aspect, and I'm, I'm happy I'm happy because that somebody is coming to them and saying, well, here's what I'm going to do. And though the whole phase is what she wants to do with this is, of course, you mentioned they want to start off with the whole Puget Sound area of Seattle. And then they're going to go more towards all across America with uh, retailers who are indie friendly. So if you're, you know, which is great because, you know, we talked about last week how Jeff Lemire wants to do more indie books, more creator-owned stuff. We talked about Black Crown and, and what they want to do with their creator-owned stuff. Who knows? Maybe if this if this works and it gets off the ground and it really is successful, maybe they'll say, you know what, Diamond, we're going to go to to this distributor instead, you know? And you know what? It only takes one. It right. It only takes one to land one fish for this distributor for all the others to suddenly kind of go, huh? Like, say, Dynamite, just as a random example, decides right. to grab onto this new distributor, then all of a sudden, all the other publishers are going to go, huh, maybe we need to start paying attention to this. And maybe that's when Diamond will start, start kind of feel the heat and see maybe we see some changes on them. If nothing else, if this just forces Diamond to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more, you know, kid gloves with what they're doing then I think that it's a, an absolute win. Obviously, I don't want to see 
her business fail, and I really don't think it will. Well, maybe this causes Diamond to do more quality control. Right, exactly. Just actually pay, like I said, pay more attention to what you're doing. And actually, and I mean, I know shipping is not an exact science either, right? Stuff can get damaged in shipping all right. the time. And I think that, you know, it's going to be great when you're delivering books around your local area in Puget Sound area if you're this new distributor. You can kind of have more quality control that way. But once, sometimes once it leaves your doors, there's not much you can do. But what you can do is make sure your shipping containers and boxes are padded and make sure everything is, you know, is is as tightly knit as it has to be so you don't get that damage in shipping. You know, and I mean, even people that ship stuff through eBay know that much. If you're a giant distributor of comics, you should be taking and paying more attention to that kind of stuff. And, you know, in case the comics are plastic so they don't get water damaged. If Trucks right. leak. Trucks leak. So don't think that they don't. I mean, trucks they leak. Could... Boxes fall. Things right. shift. I mean, there's a thousand different things that could happen. Right. And I'm just – I'm happy that this is happening. Uh, I'm, I'm happy there's going to be hopefully some competition to Diamond because, you know, this, again, this could help them, you know, amp up their quality control and be a better company. And, I, you know, I, what I want is I want competition, you know, especially because we know – People who own comic book shops in the area, we we you know and stuff like that. We have friends who who do as well outside of this area, and so you know we talk about stories earlier on in past shows about how they have to spend X amount of money to get you know variant covers and yep. certain amounts, and certain publishers make them buy a certain amount of books, even though there's not that much demand for the books. It's like okay, if you're if you're dumping money into any of these books. And you have to get a certain amount, like a stack of them. You want to make sure that stack, whether you sell a lot of them or not, is protected and is going to get to yeah. your, your door and be easy to move because there's no watermarks, there's no rip, you know, rip covers, there's no bent, 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 uh, you know, spines or broken spines of these things. You know, so you, you want to make sure that your investment is well protected. Yeah, how pissed are you if, if those books that you had to over order? Half of them are damaged, you know, so there, there goes half your investment that you didn't really want to make in the first place right. right off the jump just to get some of these variant covers. So, yeah, hopefully this, like you said, more quality control, if we can force that on Diamond a little bit, and I'm not saying that they don't do it now, but if it made them just pay a little bit more attention to that, I think that this is going to be a win, and I mean, best of luck to her. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News, but coming up next... We're going to be entering the world of Highlander, the American Dream, with writer Brian Ruckley. He's going to come out and talk about his new series. That's coming up next. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, when it comes to cult classics, I would say that this one's probably right there up at the top of the list, and glad to have it back in comics, actually. We're talking about Highlander, the American Dream. We have writer Brian Ruckley on this week. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime. As a matter of fact, Brian, it's been over 30 years since the first Highlander movie, and I believe it's been 10 years since we last saw any Highlander comics. So why do you feel like this was the right time to bring back Connor McCloud? Well, I think it's slightly above my pay grade how exactly these things get worked out, but I think this is exactly the 30th anniversary, and there was a new edition of the movie coming out, I know, this year, a 30th anniversary edition. And I think that kind of fitted with IDW's well into the licensed properties and doing really good jobs on some of the most famous licensed properties. So I suspect this was something they'd had their eye on for a while and the timing just worked out perfectly. 
And, you know, Brian, diving into the comic itself, early on in issue two, which is out now, McCloud's fellow immortal, uh, Austin Veselik, he talks about how he's a monk and he won't kill mortals. And he's very by the rules when it comes to combating other immortals. So when Veselik sees McCloud's uh, being the opposite of that and killing mortals, how much do you think it weighs on him mentally and how do you think it's going to affect him or how will it affect him, I should say, going on in later issues? Well, it it does a little bit. Yeah, you're right that Ostervazilek, the way I've developed him in this in this series, is pretty much straight down the line, playing the game by the rules, sticking to those rules, and developing some rules kind of as of his own as well. But I think one of the points of the series, or one of the things I really wanted to do with it, was have a look at Connor and how he changes over the years. And I think certainly in these first couple of issues when you see Connor back in the 1860s he's going through I think you could call it a bit of a bit of a rough patch really he's kind of a bit tired of it all he's seen too much he's done too much and he's he's still a good guy he's a good guy all the way through but he's um he's struggling a bit with the burdens that being an immortal gets inevitably gets dumped on your shoulders so he uh He's playing a bit fast and loose with the rules, Connor, but um, I think you can assume he'll come good by the end of the series. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get going here, but I wanted to talk about how the Kurgan was actually referenced in the first couple of issues here and there, but you actually introduced us to another interesting villain in John Hook. Now, what do you think makes him a unique and different challenge for Connor? So I think what I what I was going for with John Hook is he's he's completely made up. He's just someone came out of my head really. And I thought I just thought it'd be fun to have a character who in a series called The American Dream, John Hook came across on the Mayflower and discovered that he was an immortal just shortly after that. And he's lived his entire life in America from, you know, before America was America, if you like. And he's not really had all the kind of guidance that you might hope a, a newly minted immortal might have. And to be honest, he's wound up as a psychopath, a sociopath, who has no sense of anybody else apart from him having any significance. Um, so he's a bit more, I always thought of, this is doing a bit of D&D nerdery, but I always thought of the Kurgan as kind of, lawful evil neutral evil and john hook is pretty much straight up chaotic he's chaos he's not interested in any rules even the kurgan follows some of the rules or gives them lip service john hook isn't into any of that he's entirely out for himself fulfilling his own sort of kind of crazy urges and desires so he's he's chaos if you like you know, we see events kind of start to unfold a little bit over numerous time periods as the series covers numerous eras, as you mentioned earlier. Outside of the advancement of technology, what would you say is the most complex thing uh, immortals like McCloud have to adapt to as you know they stay the same age or they don't really age at all and everything around them is evolving? Well, that's, that's kind of... To me, it's a bit of a nightmare, actually. I, I think it would be a terrible thing in a lot of ways. But they're, the kind of thing that Connor wrestles with us all the time is obviously the thing of being adrift and not being able to form any lasting 
relationships that no relationship is going to live as long as he is. But the whole idea of living through all these times where the the attitudes to violence, the capacity for violence is changing all the time. So for people who, as both Oster Vasilek and Connor did, started out in an era of swords and shields and all that horrible hand-to-hand combat to come up through the centuries and see the humanity's capacity for violence getting more and more extreme and more amazing weapons and you can imagine what somebody who was born with a sword and a shield to fight with might might think of tanks when they turn up and machine guns and atomic weapons i mean the the psychological burden of seeing what humanity is capable of and you can't help but think they must they must sometimes think everything's just getting worse and worse and worse as they get older well plus in mcleod's case it's kind of like where's the skill in this exactly yeah yeah no that i mean they're left with they're left with having to fight each other with swords and you know obviously taking sword sword fighting seriously as an art form and all around them humanity is just kind of mashing itself into a pulp with these ever more advanced machinery of destruction absolutely we're talking to writer brian ruckley of idw's highlander the american dream issues one and two are out right now at your local shops and digitally as well now when Osta Vasilik talks about how dangerous immortals are when they do not follow the rules. An interesting question kind of popped into my head, and I was thinking about it. Which do you think would be more dangerous, learning that immortals walk among us or the existence of time travel? Ooh. Well, in terms of dangerous, I would have to say time travel probably because just because the sheer scope there for messing things up is so vast. But in terms of the psychology of the human race or something it would be pretty devastating to find out that there were immortals living amongst you because at the end of the day it would be i mean that would be the ultimate example of the one percent and the 99 percent, where all the rest of us mere mortals know we're gonna die we've got a limited lifespan and to find out that there's this secret elite living amongst you who uh if not eternal life at least have a guarantee of a super long life that's the kind of thing that would shake things up in pretty bad ways, I guess. And it's the kind of evil that could grow from something like that, you know, I think is quite, kind of what you were kind of getting at. You know, humanity's humanity's got a, a fairly well-established gift, I think, for turning anything to evil ends and making evil come out of almost anything that, that provokes them. So it's hard to see how it wouldn't have some pretty unfortunate consequences. And Brian, the most known phrase in Highlander, of course, is there can only be one. So here's a question for you. If your life had a phrase, what would it be? Wow. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. Okay. My (laughs) – this is a terrible thing, but something I have certainly in the last year or two I've I've increasingly thought is more and more important. And I think the world would probably be a much nicer place if people lived by – lived by this phrase which is don't be a dick 
<laughs> that should be everywhere. Yeah. I, can just, I can just see like the Ruckley family crest. It's just like whatever it is on the bottom, like with a little ribbon that says "Don't be a dick." On that, that would actually work. Really, that sounds good. I might get a T-shirt or something in the old Victorian lettering too, with yeah. all the swirls and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nice and flowery. Uh, right. Such a beautiful thing. <laughs> Oh, wow. So getting back to Highlander for a minute here, Brian, there have been a lot of Highlander stories over the years in various platforms. I mean, there's been animation, comics, movies, TV shows, you name it. So we know The Gathering isn't necessarily where the story ends. So is there any other setting which you'd really love to write within the franchise if you got the chance? And would you choose Connor or Duncan McLeod? Well, you know, the the truth is I'm a Connor guy. I would always be a Connor guy. The first movie is the one I know really well. And it's Mm -hmm. the one, you know, my brief for this series was to work off the movie, off that original movie. Um, So I'd always want to stick with Connor. And to be honest, I mean, the thing, you know, I love doing, I love doing a prequel because there's so much stuff there that can be mined. But, um, you know, you can't watch that original movie without wanting to know what happens after the final scene, like the next day, after after he's won the prize and he's going off to dot, dot, dot. You don't know quite what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I would love to do that. As a writer, isn't it kind of nice to be able to possibly do a series like that where it takes after a scene like that at the end of the movie yeah. and kind of put a ribbon on it? It is, yeah. You always... I mean, it's a tough thing when you're being a writer. Always, You're always conscious of... Endings are endings, and right. you know th- things that people have written and created. They end the way they do for a particular reason. So I'd be the last person to say that, you know, looking at anything, but including the original Highlander movie, I'm not sitting here saying somebody needs to go in and sort that ending out and tidy it up and make it neat and say what happens next. But you know, as a fan, you can't help but look at it and be curious and want to explore it and play with it a bit when there's a cult classic like that no matter what you do there's going to be a longing there you know and to be able to kind of fill that gap for people i think it would be neat yeah i mean it's it's a character thing isn't it it's you know the original highlander movie is it's got one of the best premises whatever you think there's holes you can pick in that original movie if you want to but the basic premise and the kind of energy to it are just amazing and the strength of the character of connor that people got so attached to and stuff it's inevitable that people want to see what happens next they want to stay with the character revisit the character and the story and, and just real quick so you know like whenever you have a, a certain ending on like say for instance you do the series where you have okay this is what happens after the first movie do you think that because of the way that certain you know comic readers are or at least movie film fans are where they want that open ending or if they deem something might not be as great do you think that there might be best to maybe put the series if you were to do something like that as like a what if type of event or or make it you want to kind of try to see if it can become canon oh i hate the word canon um if if <laughs> i'm um, sorry <laughs> no on, only in the sense that i it's such a it's got it's such a loaded term nowadays and oh, yeah. in some ways I think um you know, you're digging yourself a hole you're never gonna get out of if you start trying to fret over exactly what's canon and what's not. True, true. I, I, I think readers are 
entitled to treat anything as their own personal canon. And if people want to treat anything as a what-if story, then that's fine by me. I don't. Um, I don't think you can. You can expect everything to always fit perfectly together, and people are perfectly capable of choosing for themselves what's canon and what's not. Right. And before we get you out of here, Brian, I want to talk about the art in this series. So what's something that has stood out to you the most about uh, Andre Muti and Vladimir Popov's work? Uh, you know, the <laughs> I thought um, I thought I might be going to get in a bit of trouble with the artist on this series, to be honest, because it's a bit of a cliche, but people always say that artists hate to draw horses and cars. And, uh, you know, in the course of this series, and certainly in the issues that are still to come, you know, I've I've sent I've sent um, Andrea scripts that require him to draw horses and 1980s taxi cabs and 1950s police cars and <laughs> motorbikes and bicycles and you know everything under the sun, and he just you know he nails it all. It, nothing nothing phases him. He just gets everything looking exactly as you'd want it to and he switches you know the way he can switch between the time periods because it's highlander you've got our flashbacks you can't do highlander without flashbacks right. right and he nails he nails all the time periods and then vladimir comes along and you know particularly i think you can see it most clearly in issue two actually so far he what he does with the colors the way he treats the different time periods with the colours, there's actual subtle differences in in kind of the intensity of the colours and the saturation and the palettes he's using for all the different time periods. And it works I think it works beautifully. It's not it's not jarring, it's quite subtle changes, but it really shifts the mood and the the tone as you move from each time period. It's amazing. They're amazing guys. So I'm guessing we're never gonna see Highlander the horses and the horsepower then if that's the case. Well, you never know what you might see, to be honest. I think, um, I'll tell you, I think I think my favourite thing that Andrea's drawn, it's in one of the later issues, is there's a few panels with a motorbike in it. And he does a lovely motorbike. He really nails a nice 1980s motorbike, I'll tell you that. Andrew's just hearing this and he's just going... Fuck! <laughs> Pretty much, damn the horses and the cars. Yeah. Damn all of them! Well, Don't encourage him. He, sw- he swears blind. He's having fun, so I choose to believe him. Well, I mean, he's not the only one because issues one and two of Highlander: The American Dream have been absolutely amazing. Go to your local comic shops and digitally and get them right now. You can look for issue three. Going to be coming out, I believe, on April the nineteenth. Writer Brian Ruckley, thank you so much for joining us to talk some Highlander this week. It's a pleasure. No worries at all. You know, James, when you look at family crests and you look at slogans for teams and everything else like that in life, I really think there isn't a better one than don't be a dick. Because it's no. just right, right to the point, you know? No, I mean, there really isn't. I mean, just think how much different Braveheart would have been if that was the uh, the motto of the Wallace family, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> I think that, you know, that would have changed the game a little bit. But, I mean, just... The way that Brian approaches this Highlander series, I mean, it is definitely somebody that that has an appreciation for for the first movie, which is really, if we're being honest, the gold standard of the entire Highlander story. I mean, the way that he is kind of able to seamlessly move that into this comic, I think is what makes it so good. Oh, and plus, I think one of the more important things, especially 
you know, as, as for a writer and, you know, as for the artists as well, the colorists as well, as, you know, as he mentioned, when you're jumping and having flashbacks, you have to have that ability as both an artist, you know, storyteller and, and, and just a writer in general, because you have to be able to pivot, you have to be able to pivot, you know, between era to era, make it connect and seems makes sense and everything else like that. So uh, just a beautiful job by Brian, everybody on this, on this book it's just been an amazing amazing job and i mean let's just discuss the elephant in the room here flashbacks aren't easy i mean how many times in the show have we said oh i hate flashbacks but again he's right you can't do highlander without flashbacks but but it's not just a given that they're going to be good either and these ones are but what i like about the flashbacks and the way that brian uses them is in a sense you know these are immortals these are people who go through all these different eras all these different ages and things are just evolving and and going coming you know building and deconstructing around them over his eras and eras. So you see a guy like Vaslik and it's kind of like, you know, back in the civil, you know, 1800s and how he's kind of conflicted, you know, in the terms of, of killing mortals to him literally in the 1950s sitting and watching a wrestling match, you yeah, know, which like, <laughs> which he hated. But it's kind of like you have those little ideas of like, okay, will this not really break him, but will this maybe make him see things in a different light, you know? Like, hey, it's the 1950s and people are seeing, you know, combat combating against two people as sport, you know? Yeah, and he touched, and he touched on that too, Brian did. I mean, how could you almost not be broken? after hundreds of years of being on Earth and watching things evolve in front of you, everything but you kind of thing, you know, that that kind of thing would, would, would really get to you eventually, I would think, and adapting to the times can't be easy. And then, oh, by the way, there's a couple of psychos that you have to deal with right. along the way as well. So, I mean, it's just so much, it's such a huge burden. I think that that, uh, that bears out in this book for sure. And, of course, you have to go out and get issues one and two of Highlander, The American Dream. They are available right now. And, again, issue three is coming April 19th. We want to thank Brian Ruckley for coming on the show so we can talk about Highlander. And that's going to do it for us here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. But, hey, if you want more of us throughout the week, be sure to hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. You can also hit us up on Twitter at downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch at Merc with one arm. Jesus Christ, I feel like every week there's like a new platform. Like soon I'm gonna be on like twenty different platforms. You are the millennial of the of the show. There's no question about I, that. I'm Based stretch- on that alone. You I'm, are I'm the stretching, millennial. I'm stretching myself more than I have limbs that can do that. <laughs> that is true. You can stretch a little bit less than, than most of us actually. So so right. good for you, man. That's that's impressive. Where can I find you? I'm only on Twitter, actually. I'm at James A. Switham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. Typical Gen Gen Xer. Yeah, pretty much. But, I mean, you can find all this stuff on our website. We do do that. We're at (laughs) downandnerdypodcast.com. We have an About Us section. If you really care, you can read that. And you can also find all of our socials on there as well. You can also find out everything that's gone on in the show this week. You want to buy the first two issues of Highlander the American Dream on Amazon? Make it easy on yourself. We'll have that available for you, too. And a whole bunch of other great stuff at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, practice safe, comic book reading. And in the words of Brian Ruckley, don't be a dick.